Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and in this episode I'll be exploring universal credit, the two-child limit, the 20-pound uplift and what this all means in relation to rates of poverty in the UK. I'm joined today by Sophie Howes, Head of Policy at the Child Poverty Action Group, or CPAG, and Kerry Prince, BASWA's Public and Political Affairs Lead. Sophie and Kerry, how are you both doing? Yeah, I'm fantastic, thanks. Thanks very much for the invitation to come and join you today. Sophie, you're very welcome. Kerry, how are you doing? Yes, all good. Um, enjoying what is a unusually sunny day. A sunny day, and I believe you're in Middlesbrough, yes? Yes, yes, Middlesbrough yes. in the northeast. Sophie, you're in London? I am. I'm in East London. Okay. And as always, I'm in my front room in Belfast. Kerry, I don't know if you're aware, but you are our first returning guest on Let's Talk Social Work. That's exciting. Yeah, I would get you a prize um, if being (laughs) here in itself wasn't a huge reward already. Um, Oh, yes. And you're going to be back with us in a fortnight when we explore the implications of the UK budget for social work. Yep, I will be. Yes. We should issue Let's Talk Social Work loyalty cards. Oh, that'd be um, good. So three stamps. What does that? What does that? Well, get I was me? thinking ten. What would you get on your tenth appearance? Um, not have to do an eleventh. <laughs> maybe I lie down. I lie down. <laughs> yeah. Earplugs, maybe. Um, <laughs> yes. So just to mention that our next episode, we're going to be exploring the impacts of the budget, um, and that's going to be announced on the third of March. And lots and lots of what we talk about today is directly relevant to the budget. Um, A huge amount of campaigning is currently ongoing, calling for the retention of the Universal Credit £20 uplift. Um, But to start us off, Sophie, can you explain just what Universal Credit is? You know, when was it introduced? What did it replace? Yeah, um, so um, Universal Credit is um, the main working age benefit in the UK. And um, what Universal Credit did was it rolled lots of what are known as legacy benefits into one. So it it rolled six um, working age benefits into one benefit. So the idea behind that was that it was going to simplify the benefit system. It was going to make it kind of easier to claim and to manage um, for people who need to access benefits. And um, it was also going to um, smooth the transition between um, moving in and out of work. So one of the criticisms of legacy benefits was that there was a bit of a cliff edge in terms of you could work up to a certain amount of hours. But if you worked over that, you'd sort of fall off benefits and then you'd lose lots of income. So um, one of the key motivations with universal credit was that it was going to sort of make that transition from work to the benefit system and back again, um, you know, an easier process. Um Whether it has achieved those aims um, is something I'm very happy to discuss if you're interested. (laughs) I I certainly am. I certainly am. And in terms of those those, those six legacy benefits, if we just cover those off because people may be familiar with them. Yeah. Income-based Job Seekers Alliance, uh, Income-Related Employment and Support Alliance, Income Support, Housing Benefit, Child Tax Credit and Working Tax Credit. That's the six, isn't it? That's the six, yeah. Okay, full house. Um, has has everyone who was on legacy benefits now transferred to universal credit? No. So the transition um, is still 
is still happening. Um, so there's been various different stages to the universal credit rollout. So it's first introduced in 2013, and then there was a kind of number of pilot areas, and then there was um, what's called universal credit full service, which, which meant it was kind of then available everywhere in the country for people who make new claims for benefits. Um, but existing people who are already claiming benefits um can continue to claim those benefits until they have something that's um, known as a sort of change of circumstance. So if something changes within their life, they might need to alter their claim or, you know, maybe they go into work for a bit and then they come back to the benefit system. At that point, they might have to claim universal credit. So that process is um, something that's called natural migration. So it's mm. this idea of naturally migrating onto the new benefit, onto the new universal credit Um system the idea is sort of over time gradually that will happen to kind of you know the vast majority of people and then everyone ends up on universal credit um in 2020 uh we were seeing the beginnings of a process called managed migration so that is where people are actually kind of supported to move on to universal credit um on a voluntary basis but with the help help of dwp they'd actually be contacted and say you know, you're claiming your legacy benefits, now is kind of the time to move on to universal credit. We're going to help you with that process. So that's something called managed migration. Um, because of um, the pandemic, managed migration has been paused. So um, we're still, I'm not 100% clear about the plans around managed migration at the moment, because um, as far as I'm aware, um, DWP haven't shared much information publicly about that at the moment. But that that was sort of starting that kind of train had left the station and now it's kind of paused and we're not really sure when it's sort of restarting again. Okay and as part of that whole process there's the two channel limit um, which you keep me right here Sophie um, back in 2017 as I understand the two channel limit was implemented um, and that restricts the child element of universal credit to the first two children in the family and that also applies to families who are still in receipt of the legacy benefit of child tax credits and there are a number of exemptions though as I understand so um, if a child is um, adopted or if a child is um, um, a twin or a triplet, you know, from a multiple birth, or if a child is taken into kinship care arrangements, or if a child is um, conceived by what the government calls um, a non-consensual, um, non-consensual sex, which everyone else knows to be rape, um, the child can be exempted from the two-child limit. Um, but apart from that, the two-child limit will affect um, all families with children born after 2017 um, for the sec- sorry for the third, fourth, fifth, or. Um, additional children. Um, it's worth a lot of money, um, £2,780 a year um, for the child element of universal credit. So it's going to have a huge impact on families who are in need of support but aren't able to access it because of the child two-child limit. Can you talk me through some of the impacts that the two-child limit has had? What do you see as CPAG and um, the impacts that it's having on families? Yeah, so um, the two-child limit is one of... Um, a whole host of reforms that we have seen to the social security system over the last 10 years or so. But there is something about the two-child limit that is particularly um, egregious and punitive to children and families. So there have been children and families more broadly have been cut, have been hit really hard by a kind of a whole package of reforms. But the two-child limit, as you kind of have already hi- highlighted, is a huge amount of money for low-income families. So it's £53 a week, which if you're ma- managing on a really low budget, it's actually a huge amount of money. So it's a huge it's a huge driver of child poverty. So we know that if you were kind of 
you know, CPAG has lots of things on its wish list in terms of things it would like to change about the social security system and, you know, cuts that we would like to see reversed. But, you know, arguably top of that list would be the two-child limit in terms of being able to lift children out of poverty and particularly deep poverty overnight. So it has a really tangible impact on child poverty. And so we can look at the stats and there are, you know, there are the sort of big numbers around that. So we um, at CPAG, we publish a report each year to mark the anniversary of the policy. So we um, publish and that's a joint piece of work with the Church of England. Um, and those um, that report and subsequent sort of statistics that have been published by government show that the po- the policy is like infecting more and more families. So we've have nine hundred eleven thousand children in two hundred forty three thousand families affected as of kind of April last year. And by the end of um, this current parliament, we are going to see six hundred thousand families affected by that policy, and that's one point three million children being pushed either into poverty or into deeper poverty as a result of that. So, so that's the numbers on the big scale, but I think we have to not lose sight of what does that mean on a day-to-day level for families? What kind of choices are you having to make as a parent when you're subject to the two-child limit? So is that a choice between feeding your children and feeding yourself? A choice between buying, you know, baby equipment or being able to buy children's clothes? These are choices that families should not have to be making, but in our research and our surveys with low-income families, they're very much reporting those are the types of um, choices that they're faced with when they're just trying to meet those very, very basic costs for children and, and they're just not able to do it because of the two-child limit. Just just, just on that, um, I think what, um, what, what's quite unique about the, the two-child limit is that over the past 10 years, um, there's been many changes and reforms to to um social security um but the two child limit feels particularly um damaging not just economically but but morally so the two child limit essentially says um if if you're if you're relatively poor compared to some of your some of the other people in the country that you don't deserve to have more than two children um it fails to take into consideration things like um different cultural backgrounds so there will be some some women will find particular pressure put on them um to conceive certain gender children um and if they, and after two if they can't then afford a third that may may have a series of repercussions for for her and her family's well-being um and i think this is it's a it feels particularly nasty um and Many of the welfare reforms that we've seen are uh, nasty. They tend to penalise people to for their fault for for, for being poor. Um, but this very much puts the onus on on women and um, punishes people for 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 wanting a family, which is surely the opposite of what the Conservative Party stand has uh, claimed to stand for, the the party of family. But surely this directly contradicts that. Absolutely. I mean, what I find in relation to the two-child limit, although we, we've had, there have been many welfare reforms, the fact that the two-child limit, the way it was introduced on day one of the introduction, it didn't affect anybody. You know, it, it each year that passes, more and more families get caught by it and more and more kids get caught by it. I think you touched on this earlier, Sophie. I'm just looking at the Department for Working Pensions um, official statistics. And um, in April 2018, there was 73 
1,530 households affected by the policy. But by the next year, April 2019, that was 161,000 households. And by April 2020, it was 250,000 households. So the impact is massive and it's growing year on year. But at the very introduction, the impact was on essentially nobody um, that it was currently receiving the benefits. Is, is that a fair way to kind of assess that change, Sophie? Yeah, and I mean, I guess... Um in some ways that might help to explain how it was possible to get the policy through in the first yes. place in some yeah. ways, because I think, you know, it's, um, as you've both highlighted, it's high, it's affecting like a growing number of families and that number is just going up and up and up. And each year we see more and more families affected by this policy. And if that had happened overnight, maybe would have there have been more opposition. Um, I think the government very much tapped into something that Kerry said, which is this kind of idea of um, sort of splitting families. So you have this idea of, you know, uh, if you can afford to have three children and you can support them and you don't need to go anywhere near the social security system, then that's fine. But if you do, if you at some point need to use the social security system, then, you know, you shouldn't have had that third child. I mean, it's, it's, which is a farce, which is a farce. It means the social security system isn't a safety net, you know, so the government justifies, I mean, the line which you hear parroted by government ministers frequently is they justify the two child limit by stating that families in receipt of benefits. And this is where the quote begins, should face the same financial choices about having children as those supporting themselves solely through work. But, you know, the implication of that is that the government views people as expecting to rely on benefits. It's an ideological view. It doesn't recognize that social security is a safety net. You know, my wife and I have two kids. We, we're not in receipt of benefits. We could have a third kid and we could afford to have a third child. But if I were to lose my job, then, you know, I would need to receive universal credit and I wouldn't receive any allowance for the third child. So it's very much an ideologically driven view. Um, it also doesn't, when we're talking about why it's nasty, it doesn't afford any consideration to the needs of the children. So if a child's pushed into poverty because of the limit, they have no say or no control whatsoever over their family's financial situation. So it penalises children. I, I, I know Kerry was saying that it, it hits, hits women very hard. It penalises children and children have absolutely no agency over their family's um, economic um, prospects. And, and for that reason, it seems, I would argue, it's a, an entirely wrong-headed policy. Yeah, I mean, it penalises children for the choices that adults make that yes. they have no control over. Um, I think the other thing in terms of the justification for the children limit is something we've seen over the last 12 months is exactly... The situation where you talked about, you know, you you and your wife have two children, you may have a, a third child in a good time. And then something like the coronavirus pandemic happens. I mean, we've got people, families that we've spoken to who were in very well paid jobs, who were, you know, in situations where they're completely supporting their own um, families. And then, you know, they have experienced sudden job loss overnight and on an unprecedented scale. And now they're claiming benefits for the first time and they have more than two children and one of those children was born after 2017 so I think it just speaks to your point Andy about um, this idea of benefit claimants over there static population mm -hmm. and then the rest of the population over here and that's that's a complete myth that that those groups are constantly changing and constantly moving all the time and if you are going to have a proper safety net then it needs to provide for everyone and recognize that we sort of move in and out of periods of needing support. Can, can, can I ask, um, on on the issue of um, a child being conceived by um, by rape, um, what is, so for example, does, so uh, is, is my understanding that, that a woman has to prove that 
that they or, or make a declaration that they that they were make a declaration, yeah, and have it verified by an approved third party. And social workers are one of the approved third parties, so it would also include GPs mm-hmm. and midwives, I, I believe nurses, but social workers as well. Do yeah. do the um, approved parties have a duty to report that to the police? This is a, this is actually a really interesting one. Um, they do in Northern Ireland. Okay. They don't elsewhere in the UK. And it actually caused a lot of um, worry and concern for members, Basel Northern Ireland members, um, because um, we have a piece of legislation which doesn't apply elsewhere in the UK that would require someone, anyone with knowledge of a serious crime to report that to police. Now, we campaigned on it and we actually had the Northern Ireland Attorney General produce human rights guidance clarifying that um, it's it's pretty much inconceivable that a prosecution would be taken against um, a professional for not reporting the crime, you know, because by implication, if the if the, the crime hasn't been reported, it's because the woman hasn't wanted to report it, you know. Um, but at the same time, that there's still a legal technicality there where social workers are theoretically at risk of prosecution. The, the legal guidance actually had to also clarify that a woman wouldn't be um, prosecuted uh, for not reporting her own rape, but that within what the legislation says, that could happen. Um, so, you know, it's a really bizarre situation in Northern Ireland, but the fact that that even comes up, you know, the fact that government even has to introduce a rape clause exemption to a policy it introduces really just underscores just how wrong um, the policy is in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and also you just have to look at the figures on um, how much it's been used. So there are 900 families who are eligible for that except, exception. I mean, we know the scale of violence against women in this country, but that is an absolute, fra- that's just a fraction of, um, you know, the actual number of women who experience rape and coercive control within re- relationships. Um, I don't know if you saw on um, Twitter that Will Quince, um, the... Um, one of the DWP ministers wrote to Alison Thulis, who's a SNP MP, um, about her use of the word rape clause. So he has said that he is finding he doesn't want people who are campaigning against the two-child limit to talk about it as the rape clause, that we need to be talking about it as the non-consensual exemption, and that um, campaigners are contributing to kind of misunderstanding and, um, you know, problems with the policy by calling it the rape clause. I, th- I think this is where they fail to understand um, that not everyone talks like a politician um, and that some people don't, w- wouldn't necessarily equate non-consexual conception um, um, with, with, with rape and they'll know it as rape. So we need to use the language that ordinary people use the people who perhaps are most affected by this policy would use words such as rape and that's why we need to keep using that language but why introduce a euphemism you know call it what it is i mean we did some work with alison hewless um and she's a really really impressive campaigner um in relation to the rape clause issues in northern ireland and i don't want to get into the northern ireland issues again but you know if i you know from what i know of alison hewless i don't imagine that attempted admonishment is going to have much of an impact on her behavior um well she published she published the letter on twitter so that probably tells you what you need to know yes more parts here and Sophie, I know that CPAG published um, the All Kids Count report back in 2019, and that estimated that as a result of the two-child limit, 300,000 additional children would be pushed into poverty by the time universal credit was fully rolled out. Now, that figure was pre-pandemic. Does that figure still stand? Um, can it be updated? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is um, making estimating the, the number of fa- affected families at the moment a bit tricky is um, just the huge number of new claims we've seen for universal credit. So um, just to give you a scale, a sense of scale, we have seen um, over three million claims for universal credit between March and October last year. Um, so that is actually represents over one third of all universal credit claims that we've seen since universal credit was rolled out. So um, it's, a, it's a huge number of people who've kind of um, started um, claiming universal credit, which um, means that the, the kind of estimating um, how many children and families within those uh, within that cohort are a going to be affected by the two-child limit and b how long they'll be claiming benefits because some people are kind of moving off the system quite quickly and um, so those estimates uh, we published another report um, uh, last year which is called no one knows what the future holds um, and we looked at kind of estimates going forward um, these again are pre-pandemic estimates so I'll give those estimates and then I'll report what we think might be the case with the kind of COVID um, cohort if that makes sense. So we estimated that by the end of um, this parliament so by the time we have the election in um, 2024 um, there'll be 600,000 families who've been affected by the two-child limit Um, And so in those families, there'll be 1.3 million children um, who have been affected by the policy. And so those were our estimates in terms of going forward, in terms of families affected by the policy. Um, And those families, and I should clarify those families being pushed below the poverty line. So they'd be living below below the poverty line. Some of them will be living very far below the poverty line. So that's known as kind of what we call deep poverty. Um, In addition, we estimated that an additional 60,000 families would be caught by the two-child limit as a result of the um, the kind of new cohort of um, kind of people who've been claiming universal credit since um, coronavirus. Uh, I probably need to caveat those estimates with the fact that we did them last summer and we're in a real state of sort of flux in terms of who's claiming universal credit, who's moving on and off um, the system at the moment. Um, but yes, another we can safely say tens of thousands more families will be affected by this policy as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And the impact of more families being in poverty, you know, it's horrific for those families. There's also knock-on impacts for public services and for spending. Um, and that's something I think which is very often not recognised in, in discussions around this. And I don't think government really take this into consideration. I'll just bring it back again to a social work perspective. Um, the, the Child Welfare Inequalities Project, that's a, a project which was led by Professor Paul Bywaters. Um, and its final report, which is from July 2020, it found that children in the most deprived, 10% of small neighbourhoods in the UK, are over 10 times more likely to be in foster or residential care or on protection plans than children in the least deprived, um, 10% of small neighbourhoods. And this has considerable impacts for public expenditure. You know, the cost of looking after children in care is absolutely huge. The emotional impact of kids being in care also is huge. Um, Joseph Rowntree Foundation, um, they have a, a paper from 2016. It's called We Can Solve Poverty in the UK. And that estimates that in 2016, £78 billion pounds of public money was spent annually um, to deal with poverty and its consequences. Um, so that's, you know, the impacts in terms of health spending, education, criminal justice, children and adult social care um, and social services. 
that year, 2016-17, I looked back, the UK government's total expenditure was £772 billion. So that's basically 10% of all public spending was being spent to mitigate the impacts of poverty. And that's what I don't think the government really takes into consideration. They can say we can save money by introducing welfare reforms, but no consideration seems to be given to the knock-on impacts for the rest of public spending. And I think until you can really... Um, quantify the cost of poverty to other services it's very hard to justify reducing spend preventative spend in relation to improving social security yeah it's a really um it's a really good point and i think something we would very much echo is um you know that kind of cost benefit analysis um doesn't seem to be something that's a particular priority for government really um and it is very frustrating because, as you say, the kind of picking up the pieces um, of families living in poverty and the impact for children in terms of children's lives and how this follows them through their entire lives um, is huge. It's absolutely huge. Why is it that the government is not convinced by those arguments? Um, I mean, I think that's an interesting discussion to have. I think with when we look at, say, I mean, you're, you're talking about lots and lots and lots of different policy areas. So this spans across Social Security, education, health, criminal justice, lots of different areas there. But if I think about just looking at one of the areas that CPAG spends a lot of time on, which is kind of Social Security, is some of this stuff is so underpinned by ideology. Yes. So this idea that families um, shouldn't be reliant on the state that they should be working, that they, um, you know, dependency on any level is is kind of a bad thing and families need to be living their lives independent of kind of any sort of um, state intervention, which is, which is quite misguided because, as you're pointing out, as a result of poverty, there's probably way more state intervention in people's yes. lives. I mean, nobody, nobody would dispute that dependency on social security is a bad thing. But when an economy is in a situation where people that are in work can't afford to support their families, there's a problem which isn't social security, it's a broken economy. You know, so I don't think you'll find any social worker will want to justify people being dependent on social security. That is a, that is a way of mitigating problems elsewhere in, in the economy. It's, it's not really the solution. No, and I think, uh, you know, something that is frustrating for CPAG in terms of um, kind of having worked in the kind of child poverty space over a number of decades is what we really don't have at the moment is like cross-government working on child poverty. So we don't have um, a cross-government child poverty strategy anymore. We don't have different departments talking to each other about what they need to do to address child poverty. Um, it's kind of seen as probably predominantly DWP's responsibility, but maybe a bit of treasury, maybe a bit of education. And that's kind of as far as it goes. They don't talk to each other about it. They um, will claim that the other department is responsible for the thing that you want to, to make happen. So I think without some of that kind of um, cross-government sort of strategic working, uh, we won't get a, um, the kind of approaches that I think you're talking to and that we really need. It's also the difficulty of policy being made by exceedingly wealthy people who, you know, even if they had the best intentions, now I don't want to comment on their intentions, but even if they had the best intentions, if you don't have any experience of what poverty looks like, if you literally are, you know, so the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is a multimillionaire, you know, if you've no idea what poverty looks like in terms of day-to-day -day reality, it's very, very hard to actually then 
develop policy that's going to alleviate poverty because you don't know what you're dealing with. And I think there is there's absolutely no lived experience um, or anything close to it in terms of um, our government and um, their experiences of um, the hardships of, of, of living in poverty. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real, um, that's something that's hugely absent from government and a kind of, an, a, a, an, and not recognising that it's not just a case of listening to people who may have experienced poverty, but also seeing that they might have some expertise to bring to the table. Like, I don't think that this government is kind of um, willing to engage in that kind of, in those types of dialogues from, you know, from my experience. I don't know. One of the most stark and shocking um, stats I read recently in relation to the two child limit. Now, this is research published at the end of last year by the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. And it found that the two child limit was, and I'll just quote, they called it a significant factor in women's decisions to end pregnancies during the pandemic. Um, so the research found that of women who ended a pregnancy during the pandemic, 57% of those who, who were aware of and likely to be affected by the two child limit said it impacted their choice. You know, the research went on it to describe women feeling significant regret and sadness because they felt unable to continue with what was in many cases a wanted pregnancy and, and they felt they couldn't continue because of the two child limit policy. And, you know, given we're in a pandemic, um, you know, this is a really stark highlight that the safety net for families is not working. If the safety net doesn't work when we are in an economic downturn, you know, when's it going to work? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um those figures from um, BPAS are really shocking, aren't they? Um, and I think it kind of speaks to points Kerry was making about, you know, this is predominantly falling to to women, and you know, is is just another element of control over their bodies, really. When we when we kind of boil it down, you know, the two child limits having unintended consequences. So it's having the consequences of more women having abortions. Um, it's also having the consequence of um, being a deterrent for new families forming. So if you, you know, if you are a single parent and you meet another single parent and you both have children and you would like to form a new family, then the two-child limit is a deterrent. So it's interesting that that's a, like another a unintended consequence of the two-child limit is that it's actually going to make people think twice about actually forming families. I, I, this is kind of putting you on the spot, Sophie, because this isn't something I have read CPI comment on. It's not something I've actually seen others comment on either. But, you know, we have an aging population. We're facing, we, sorry, we're not facing, we're in the midst of an adult social care crisis. Has anyone considered what impact the two child limits actually going to have in terms of family size and, um, you know, population growth? Because if population growth slows, the impact of an aging population is only going to increase. You know, you need to have people in work, you need to have people contributing tax and national insurance to pay for services. Is that something that CPAG has taken into consideration? I don't think it's something the government has taken into consideration. Yeah, um, it's not something that we've kind of done any work on. So I wouldn't really be able to comment about kind of what I, I don't know whether there's any research out there that would tangibly link the policy to population growth or decline. So, yeah, difficult for me to say. I'll go out on a limb and say I can't imagine it's going to help. Um, if we move on, in the, there's a huge amount of coverage at the moment in the media about the £20 uplift. Near the beginning of the pandemic, Universal Credit was increased by £20 a week for all claimants. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's for all claimants of Universal Credit and working tax credit. But they did leave out um, certain claimants of legacy benefits. 
which has been problematic and we've campaigned against them. Okay, and impacts. So I want to talk about impacts. I was reading the, the Resolution Foundation um, had a report in January this year. It's called um, Living Standards Outlook. Um, and it highlights that um, rising unemployment and the removal of the 20-pound uplift in 2021-22, they anticipate that's going to lead to further 1.2 million people falling into relative poverty, 400,000 of whom are children. And they cite that as being the biggest year-on-year rise in poverty rates since the 1980s. And then just today, what's today's date? I'm just going to check that I don't get this wrong. Um, we are talking on Wednesday, the 17th of February, and this episode will be available to stream from Thursday, the 18th. Today, the Fabian Society published its report, Who Loses? And that indicates that the removal of the £20 uplift is going to push in there modelling 760,000 people into poverty. So that's just looking at the £20 uplift. Um, and they break that down. They go into some um, detail on this. Um, they said that only 40,000 um, of those that would be pulled into poverty um, by the cuts live in households where no one is working or no one is disabled. And by contrast, 490,000, that's 64% of people that are going to be impacted, are in working households, most of them in families, working families with children. They break that down further. 300,000 people are going to be couples in work with children. 140,000 people are single adults in work with children. And only 50,000 people that are going to be affected by the 20-pound uplift being removed are single adults or couples in work without children. You know, so the impacts are huge. It kind of runs contrary to what the government are saying. They're saying... They introduce the two-child limit because they want to make sure that it's as difficult to essentially as difficult to raise families um, when you're on benefits as if you're in work. But if they're going to remove the twenty-pound uplift, it's going to have a detrimental impact primarily to working families. That doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately there's still there's still lots of parliamentarians and actually and generally and definitely the general public don't understand that a huge amount of people who access social security support are working. So I think that, you know, you saw that with the debates that happened around the um, Labour pushed for a debate on the £20 uplift that happened a couple of weeks ago in Parliament. And you could see that by some of the interjections from certain parliamentarians is that there there didn't seem to be much of an understanding that we are talking about working families. Um, and that lots of people who work also claim benefits that top up their low pay. Um, and so I think that that kind of general understanding isn't really out there. So I think that that kind of contributes to some of the some of the policy decisions and the sort of myths around some of this. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the, the impact of the £20 um, being removed is is going to be huge if the government decide not to continue it. So um, if we look back, I sort of mentioned earlier that... Um, We've seen a whole kind of swathe of cuts to social security over the last 10 years, which amount to about £40 billion being taken out of the system. And so to keep the £20 costs the government about £6 billion a year. Um, that is, you know, so it's, it's really important to see the £20 against the backdrop of what's already happened, because it's it's just making good some of what has happened it's it's really is the sort of bare minimum that the government should be doing at the moment to support um you know all low-income people but particularly low-income families with children um what often doesn't get talked about enough um by decision makers is the impact that poverty has in the long term um so it's not just a case that um a family 
you know, if, if you, many many treat this issue as if it's um, as if it's superficial. It's not as if a, a family won't be able to pay for Sky for a month. Or one of those stupid comparisons that people make about what it is that poorer families spend their money on. Um, but there is a link between a family experiencing financial hardship and children needing social work intervention. Um, so BASWA has contributed to inquiries. The ABPG for Poverty recently did, acquire, did an inquiry um, on, on universal credit and the £20 uplift, and we contributed to that and said there is, that there is a link between um, families experiencing financial hardship and needing children's social work intervention, um, which as anyone listening to this will probably know, will have long-lasting lifetime effects on, on children and families. Um, that's just uh, one point. And the second is, um, I think I think there has been growing support for retaining the uplift in Parliament because, as has already been addressed in this session, um, more and more people are having to go on to universal credit, more and more people are needing financial support um, from the government. Um, so that... And so... Being very cynical here, um, it comes down to to votes at the next election. If um, if because this this is how many politicians think. Um, if they have a relatively deprived constituency and more of their constituents are having to claim universal credit and are about to lose twenty pound a week um, that they receive, um, who 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 do they blame for that? Will they blame their local MP and they blame the government? And if you're a Conservative MP, that's that's your party being hit from from both sides. And what about the red wall seats then, Kerry, that we hear so much about? Uh, a lot of those seats that have fallen to the well, Tories, um, would they be some of those constituencies you're talking about? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know the de- uh, the demographic makeup of, of those seats, but, but yes, that will probably be a worry for um, Conservative MPs who won in traditional Labour areas. Um, these are people who have obviously voted Labour for years and years and years and this time decided that they'd vote Conservative instead. And there will be a fear that those voters will go back to Labour. So these these members of Parliament who now represent these red wall seats need to consider what they can do to retain them and backing policy that is going to see their constituents and their constituencies in their, in their high streets and local economy worst off isn't isn't the way they're going to keep hold of those seats. So as well as it being an economic consideration and a moral consideration, it's a political one as well. Kerry, you mentioned there is kind of growing support, cross-party support for the uplift to be retained. I know that earlier this month, the Working Pensions Committee urged the government to retain the uplift for at least another 12 months. Um, And uh, the six um, Conservative members, I believe, on that um, committee, a growing number of Conservative Party backbenchers are also supporting calls for the uplift to be retained. Now, that is a, that's a, a Commons committee making that recommendation. I know that Treasury has suggested a one-off payment of either £500 or £1,000 to families that are in receipt of universal credit, um, but that's been rejected by the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Sophie, Kerry, what's the thinking behind that proposal? Do you know very much about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the motivation by the Treasury is that a one-off payment just ultimately is going to be cheaper for them. Um, So I think that's their key motivation, but it's a way of providing some support to existing claimants. Our sort of main opposition to that would be that, um, you know, this pandemic is not over. There are going to be lots more children and families who are going to need support from the social security system over the coming weeks and months. And that payment inevitably would have to be introduced on one day would be paid to everyone who was a claimant of universal credit at that particular point in time. And then, you know, people who claim the next day wouldn't get that support. So we don't think it's a particularly effective way of getting money out to families. 
I was just going to say briefly that one of the things that, um, you know, claimants of universal credit talk about being one of the main um, problems with the system is how much um, fluctuations of payment changes and how it goes up and down and it's responsive to earnings. So that can be seen as a good thing, but it's considered like a sort of hyper means tested benefit. So it's kind of going up and down all the time. And, uh, you know, claimants have definitely reported to CPAG that kind of reliability and security of income, just knowing what you're going to get each month and then being able to budget accordingly is one of the things they value the most. And I think a one-off payment doesn't speak to any of that. I think there's also the point that a one-off payment closes the issue. So if, for example, the government extend it by six months, 12 months, I know six months isn't enough and we're we're pushing for 12 months um, as as a minimum, then if um, that then means in six or 12 months time, we will all again be campaigning for it to be extended and retained. Um, But if it's a one-off payment, then at what point do we all join together again to say, well, this hasn't been enough, something more needs to happen? Um, It's a a shrewd way perhaps by the government to say, uh, well, it, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've done what, what we wanted to do. We've helped out. It's not a problem anymore. Um, whereas, if we can keep this system in place, this 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 weekly, monthly system, um, that just c- continues, and that's a stronger um, ground for the campaign to continue. So, I think it is a, a, a political decision as well as an economic one um, that it is better for them, and it quietens opposition if they do a one-off payment. That's really interesting. Thanks for clarifying that, um, Kerry. In our last episode, we explored um, the Biden administration's proposals um, across a whole range of social policy areas, but one of them was the plans to address child poverty as part of the pandemic uh, economic stimulus plan. Um, And, you know, part of that was the proposal is to radically overhaul child benefits in the US. You know, and the US hasn't kind of historically been um, a society which is famed for its social security provision. But when progress has been made in the USA, it's it's stark that we're facing a rollback, potentially in, in the UK. And if anyone wants to listen to that episode, I would really encourage you to go back. It was a really good episode. Kerry, Sophie, just as we wrap up, looking forward two weeks ahead to the budget, given the, the groundswell of support the campaign for the £20 uplift is receiving, are you confident that the £20 additional uh, uplift a week is going to be retained? Um, so I, when, when answering these questions, I tried to put myself in the, uh, in the position of, of, of Rishi Sunak and, and, and kind of what I would do and comes back to people um, and many politicians thinking about more than just what's the right thing. And if I were Rishi Sunak and I perhaps had ambitions to be the next PM, I would not be wanting to make myself unpopular by not at least extending this for six months. So I think um, he, he will extend for six months, probably not longer. And just just on that, though, just before we move on to that, in terms of the Conservative Party membership, the membership and their role in election the leader of the party whose views matter more the the support of the country to make him prime minister or the support of his party to make him leader of the party i could i could talk about this kind of stuff for hours um but um i think when 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 we're looking at the conservative party membership i think they are very shrewd um, and i think they vote for leaders often based on who they think the country will support so largely probably more so even than even the massive labor party membership i think much of the conservative party membership um, is is perhaps more in tune with 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 public feeling because I think it's much more pragmatic um, in in some ways. So um, whilst the conservative um, 
because having a membership voice is hugely important but I think that voice is influenced by what the public are saying so if the Conservative membership know that their leader needs to tack left a bit um, or, or, or tack right with you know the rise of Nigel Farage and the Brexit party um, then then I believe the, the Conservative Party membership do that because it's very much about winning and winning at any cost. So uh, perhaps they're one and the same. That's really that's really insightful. Thanks, Kerry. Sophie? Yeah, I mean, I won't offer any um, insightful comments on um, the ins and outs of um, the Conservative Party and how they choose their leadership, but very interesting reflections from Kerry there. Um, in terms of the uplift... Um, I think they have to do something. And so I think we're definitely going to see something. I think it's what it is that is still very much up in the air. Um, Like Kerry, I think it's probably going to be a short extension. So um, probably six months, you know, would be great to see 12 months. Um, You know, CPAG's policy position is that it should be made permanent. So we will continue to push until until that happens. but I would imagine that um, six months or, you know, if I'm th- feeling optimistic, possibly 12 months is what we're looking at. We will know this day in fortnight. It's just after two o'clock now on Wednesday afternoon. So we'll know in two weeks. And in two weeks time, um, we're going to be making an episode with colleagues from the Resolution Foundation and Joseph Rowntree Foundation, both of whose research I have used in today's episode. And Kerry, you'll be back joining us for that. And I'm really looking forward to it. And hopefully by that stage, we will have had positive news in relation to this issue. Kerry, thanks so much for joining me. Sophie, thanks very much for taking part in your first episode, hopefully not your last episode. You'll come back. Thanks for having me. No, it's been great. Thanks for having me on, uh, Andy. Great to meet you, Sophie. Um, Yes, see you in two weeks.